Welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Today we have the pleasure of someone who can explain everything to us about criminal justice because nobody has written the rules or put the rules into place or analyzed the rules better than he has for the last couple of decades in Connecticut. Mike Lawler is our guest today. He's a former state prosecutor, former top aide to the governor in criminal justice policy, state representative for, I'm going to do the math here, 31 years? I was in the legislature. 87 to 2011. 24 years. 13, 24 years. And of that, he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee from 95 to 2011. That's 16 years. 16 years he was in charge of... um, of writing the rules for, uh, you can't hear on the headphones, Mike? Huh. I don't know why. I'm sorry. Are, are your headphones plugged in? Seems to be here. All right. How about now? All right. So Mike wrote the laws. He put the laws into practice. He prosecuted laws. He analyzed them. He's now associate professor of criminal justice. So he's going to help me understand some things that have really been on my mind these days about we're arguing connected from bond and bail to speed cameras. But first, you're also a member of the the police commissioner commission in New Haven. I am. And, and tonight uh, you're going to be voting on a new assistant chief, Manit Cologne. I'm looking forward to that. I, I've known uh, Lieutenant Cologne for a long time. She was a student of mine at the University of New Haven. Really? Way back in the day. I think she got out in 2008. So she's always been an all-star in my book. And, uh, and I'm very, and we've been working with her. She's the head of internal affairs at the moment at the department. She's done an extraordinary job. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to it. We, you know, we interview all the candidates, right? Whether it's a new officer coming in the front door or uh, a promotion, especially to assistant chief. And uh, and it was great to learn a little bit more about um, Lieutenant Cologne that I, I wasn't aware. Uh, you know, her her native tongue is Punjabi, and, and although there's not a big Punjabi, which, you know, Pakistan and India, that's a big hunk of both countries, um, there's not a big community here in New Haven but she pointed out that uh, many of the convenience stores, gas stations are owned by Punjabi-speaking individuals. I was once in the apartment of the manager or owner of a convenience store where people just got shot and killed in their family where she was in the room talking to the family and, and helping them settle down. I remember seeing that. Yeah. And, and, and she's one of a number of people who are coming onto the force now with uh, these... Uh, unique foreign language skills. For example, we've uh, just uh, hired <clears throat> uh, an entry-level officer, a guy in his 40s, actually, who is originally from Morocco, is a you know native speaker in Arabic. We have a couple of new people coming on board who are uh, Portuguese speakers because they're uh, w- were born in Brazil, and and obviously a, a lot of Spanish language speakers, and and, and uh, we have recently hired um, a, a Polish uh, Polish guy who's a native speaker from Poland. So, I mean... I Why is that important? Obviously, because we have people speak a lot of languages in this country, so when if you can speak the language, you can help deal with a crime scene or help a family. Yeah, and, and two ways, really. I think, number one, obviously, the basic skill is important. When called upon, and you mentioned Lieutenant Cologne's role in talking to victims in their native language. Obviously, it makes them more comfortable, but also, I think, this kind of experience, especially if you're from another culture and you, and you relocated here to the United States or to New Haven in particular, 
I think it gives you a, a, an open-mindedness that many of us Americans who were born and raised here don't have. And I think this is one of the key skills, the cultural competence skill, that I think is 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 very much characterizing police officers of the future. And you see this trend beginning here in New Haven, and, and it's long overdue and welcome. What else do you know about Monique Colon? What else have you noticed over the years? <laughs> well, uh, she has an extraordinary leadership capacity. I mean, she's very humble, to start with that. She is humble. And, and she's very highly respected by her colleagues. I mean, I, I've seen her, I've been on the commission for three years, and uh, most of that time she has been head of internal affairs, which is a very sensitive situation, and we've had the chance to speak with her about different pending cases, et cetera. And I think her insight, her, her, her fairness, right, both to the officers and to the, and to the chief, who was uh, in, in any case going to recommend discipline for these officers, and also to people in the community who complain about officer misconduct, I, I think she's got a good balanced point of view. You know, I'm sure back in the good old days, the burden was always on the uh, sort of the citizen who didn't like something that happened involving the police to prove that. You know, I, I think they were coming in as being disbelieved. And, and I, I think people like Lieutenant Cologne, you know, are open-minded and, and willing to so accept. So the breadth of experience she has so she walked the beat obviously like every cop does she's oh, been yeah. district manager in several neighborhoods so she knows mm -hmm. how to do the day-to-day -day yep. with the neighborhood patrol she's been detective she worked on robbery and burglary ran that unit and she also did special victims which is very sensitive you know sex crimes and yeah. child crimes and uh and as you mentioned ia internal affairs so that's a pretty good breadth that's someone who knows how the department runs it is and you know it, it's uh significant that chief jacobson is taking her from lieutenant status to assistant chief status that's somewhat unusual but we also had a sergeant went because sometimes people are best at that job despite who gets a few points more in a on a test yeah and and so i mean to the chief's credit i mean he's he's assembled a, a very high profile um team at the very top you know it's diverse right and uh uh chief etienne and chief zanelli have different skill sets but they're both uniquely qualified for this role and and you know i'm I, I'm very happy to be a part of this transition. That's Do you feel that on. the department's going in a good place, and was it in a good place a year ago? Yeah, I know it's going in a, in a, in a good direction for sure. Uh, there's a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. There's still some serious uh, examples of misconduct that are being investigated. There's a couple that we've been able to resolve on, on the commission. Um, you know, it, it's interesting the reaction, I think, that uh, we see on the part of the union that represents these officers who are who are coming up for discipline. Um, uh, <laughs> one of their main arguments, well, in the past, this wasn't treated that seriously, this type of misconduct. And we said, well, you know, this is a new day, right? We have new rules uh, on a statewide basis. We have new policies here in the department. We have, you know, we've learned a lot from incidents that have happened around the country. Uh, and, and I think the biggest change is technology because now everything an officer does, or most everything, is being recorded on camera, whether it's the body-worn camera or a citizen's smartphone or a surveillance camera on a residence or a store. And, and, and I think, uh, plus text messages and GPS locating, you know, we saw this come into play with one recent incident where um, an officer clearly said things that were demonstrably false as part of an investigation in official statements. And what kind of case was that? Uh, the, this officer was terminated. So, oh wow! Yeah, and and we saw that again more recently. We've but had we've had a debate about one of those in the office because there's a case where it's going to trial now with a um, officer had a pretty good record, Officer Santiago, 
And um, right, it was right when the Black Lives Matter protest started. So one day he was following a felon who was driving recklessly to commit a bunch of crimes, I think had assaulted a woman or something. And he drives really fast away from the cops, endangers them. And then he smashes, uh, by, by Quimpiac River, he smashes into a building and his car goes on fire and he's stuck in the car. And Santiago comes up behind him and while the crowd's jeering at him and the cops, he goes into the burning car and saves the guy's life. A couple weeks later, he was dealing with a drunk man. I guess it was more than a few weeks. Oh, I think it was around Thanksgiving or Christmas. And while the guy's handcuffed and being rude to him, he, I think, kicked him in the nuts and like punched him. And, like Really, this stuff he shouldn't have done. So obviously that was wrong. And in the past, given his record, he probably would have been maybe suspended, disciplined, but he was fired and criminally prosecuted. And most people always feel that that's really good, that's really progress, that's important. And I'm wondering whether that was, whether someone who's had a record like that, who screwed up that one day in a way that definitely declared discipline, whether we're going too far in the other direction and criminally prosecuting. We definitely got to criminally prosecute more than we used to. But do you think these are the right cases? Do you think that's the right case? I don't know about the case you're describing. Well, you were on the commission. He was fired. Uh, I was not. So you've been on three years. I started... Just about three years ago, yeah. So yeah, this was since then. I, I don't believe I was part of that. Mm. Uh, so, okay. uh, is this the is this the incident where the the ponytail was pulled? Is that the this the same one or not? Because I wasn't there for that one. Jason Santiago was. Uh, I, I'm not sure, was, but it was but definitely two years ago. It, it, I was not part of that, so okay. I, I don't know. No worries. Um, so, um, lost my train. Oh, so is it going too far? Right. I, I think, don't think police accountability is going too far. I think no, no, it can no. go further. I'm just wondering in a case where someone's been a really good cop, done terrific things, and does something as bad as losing his cool and, and hurting a person, didn't get hospitalized or anything, but hurting a person who is in, is in handcuffs and can't really hurt him. Uh, well, <clears throat> that type of thing is a crime. Mm. Keep in mind. Okay, so uh, it should be prosecuted then. And, uh, well, I mean, not every crime should be prosecuted. I mean, police officers and prosecutors have fair amount of discretion on what to do in a different situation um you know i'm sure you're like me paul and anybody we know i mean we've certainly broken the law of this in that situation not coming to a full stop at a stop sign or whatever and, but <clears throat> how to respond to that is an important uh question and but some of the rules are very clear and including um the rules governing use of force in order to make an arrest and once someone has uh, been restrained and in handcuffs, et cetera, on the ground, then you can't continue to do a beatdown. And we saw this to the extreme recently in Memphis, right? It's the right. same phenomenon. The cops were pissed at this guy uh, because he took off on him, and, uh, and they gave him a beatdown, and he ended up dying, right? And so, but the rules are very so clear. So I see your point, Mike, and I think that's persuasive. We give police officers the, the legal ability to detain us and kill us if they need to, or feel they need to, that it's pretty important that if they break the law on that, they have to meet a higher standard than the average citizen and that you have to set a precedent. But then you guys promoted a guy who punched this other guy in the head repeatedly till another cop pulled him off. Yeah. And then he gets promoted and not even disciplined or even told what he did was wrong. So I don't see a lot of consistency there, to be honest. I think you will see that going forward. Uh, I'm so I, I disappointed think case, in that one, yeah. I, th I think the case you're referring to... Um, is the incident that happened at the office tower. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in that particular case, and maybe this is on me a little bit, uh, I didn't associate him with that incident when we were doing our interview. 
But they didn't even, like the chief at the time, Renee Dingus, didn't even bring him up on charges. And another cop stopped him from killing this guy. And she never, she got ostracized and he got promoted. Yeah, so I'm not sure that would happen under the current administration in the department. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know what uh, our, uh, you know, we have an extraordinary assembly of people that are on the commission now. You know, we've got Tracy Mears from the Yale Law School, and we've got uh, Evelise Rivero, who's the chair, who's very experienced with this kind of thing, and, uh, you know, we've got Reverend Brooks and a few others. Uh, but I, I, I think only now has our, our group been able to gel around what our goals are and what our standards are in terms of how we're going to deal with certain situations. And, you know, I've said this to the, to the union representatives and to the officers as well. I just want everyone to understand that going forward, the rules that exist, whether it's in policy or in state statute or enshrined in the United States Constitution, we're going to enforce those. We're going to hold you to that standard. You know, and you just mentioned yourself that you know police are given unique authority and i think people don't realize that there is a law that says you are not allowed to physically resist an arrest by a police officer even if you know that arrest is mistaken or unlawful and and to resist even if you know they have the wrong person or uh, isn't in itself a crime and when officers have this kind of authority then it has to be very strictly monitored and policed. And, and when we have video, and I, and I believe in that incident in the office tower. Yeah, we've watched the video. video. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the kind of thing going forward. Maybe the message wasn't clear before, but it should be clear now. And, and Justin Farmer has a question for you. Thanks for listening, Justin. Do police need to be involved in traffic enforcement at all? Do you need people with guns to give citations? Thanks for the question, Justin. Yeah, you don't need the police to do that, right? Um, there, there are incidents, obviously, where you know the traffic enforcement is, could be reckless driving or drunk driving or, or something along those lines but no you don't and and i think it's interesting in this part of the country um almost every role that police play um is is done by a sworn officer person with a badge and a gun but in in much of the rest of the country you, you see there are civilian professionals, like crime scene specialists, who are not sworn officers, but are especially trained in processing a crime scene. And, um, and there's many roles that don't necessarily require the skill set that a sworn officer has. For example, here in New Haven, uh, the mayor's beginning an experiment with uh, sending specially trained social workers or mental health workers to deal with situations that don't appear to pose any kind of danger. Uh, but where a more appropriate response and a more effective response would be uh, somebody who's not wearing a badge and a gun. Obviously, it's very intimidating to be confronted by someone like that, especially if you're already dealing with whether it's homelessness or mental illness or substance abuse, that type of thing. So um, I, I think in the future, the, the role that police will play, meaning the sworn officers, will be restricted a little bit. And, and many of the jobs that we now dump on officers to deal with will be delegated to other better. And it is funny how that conversation taking place because until Black Lives Matter, officers would complain that they're not social workers, that we dump on them. And it's true. We expect them to fix all sorts of problems that aren't they're making and they aren't trained to deal with, whether it's mental health or homelessness or poverty. Yeah. But now when people are saying, let's not have police doing everything because that can inherently escalate a situation and have the wrong skill set brought to bear i find there is a defensiveness nationally among police unions saying you're being against us then yeah so um 
this whole for us or against us mentality is, is really not very constructive to yeah. problem solving. And, you know, I, I remember saying a million times in different contexts, you know, if, you're, if your strategy is all or nothing, you know, you're always going to be successful. You're going to get one or the other. So you might as well try and find a middle road and, and compromise. You used to get, get nothing. Usually, yeah. You can ask the... the <laughs> Once you know, in a while, you hit well, the jackpot. You, you can ask the collective uh, former county sheriffs here in Connecticut how right. that worked out with their strategy. I mean, you and I were around when that all was going down, yeah. but that was another example of you know people resisted reform in, until the very end, and then the whole system was just abolished altogether. Now, I don't, think, a, I don't the, think that was a bad thing. No, it was a very good thing. I was yeah. one of the major proponents of it, but... Um, and I used to be one. I used to work. I was a special deputy sheriff oh, yeah? when I was in law school, and so were my two younger brothers. And oh, wow. we got to see for, firsthand how messed up that situation was. I could tell you some stories about that if you ever are interested. But, um, yeah, it, that's what happens. And so I, I think, you know, um, I, I, I was disappointed recently when I saw the New Haven Union, the police union, challenging uh, this initiative to farm out some of this work to others, right? And at the same time, some of these same individuals were complaining that they they are expected to do too many things. Yeah. Like, okay, got it, right? I think you're expected to do too, too many things too. I would like to segment this out a little bit, if it were up to me. And um, it's, but but I do think going forward, you're going to see it. It's not defund the police, right? It's not abolishing the police. It is just, you know, acknowledging that we, you know, the the police get all this stuff dumped on them. All of the most intractable problems we deal with, substance abuse, homelessness, mental illness, you know, uh, juveniles who are acting out, the foster kids, you know, and they're ex domestic violence. Uh, they're expected to deal with all these things and, and they're not really trained to do that in a, in a, in a way. So anyway, I think we're, that ta we're talking to Mike Waller, who is uh, New Haven's most informed and insightful person on criminal justice. He's a member of the police commission, associate professor of criminal justice, UNH, but he's former state prosecutor, governor's top eight on crime and chair of the state legislation district committee from the 20th century. Well into the 21st <laughs> century. How's that for, uh, there you go. <laughs> so, so help me figure out Tom, Mike, Mike, one thing I've always valued you for and appreciate so much is you really helped me understand the basics of criminal justice when I'm writing about it and get so much of it wrong. And lately I, my has been exploding trying to get, Around the, around the debate over bond and bail and why we even have this system, which doesn't make any sense to me, but, but get, I want to get a little more into specifics for you. But first, tell me the difference between bond and bail. So the word bail just means you're not incarcerated while the charges are pending. That's all it means. It has nothing to do with money, right? And so if you're out on bail, if, if it could be no dollars. It could just be you're released on bail. And, and many, if not most people, get released on a promise to appear, and that's bail? Bail is the status of not being incarcerated while the charges are So a are bail paid. bondsman? A, a bond is sometimes required as a condition of your release, meaning a money bond. And uh, this gets complicated. Oh, that's why when people say no cash bail, they're saying no release based on cash. Yeah, the money bail thing is, uh, first of all, a couple of things to keep in mind. This whole idea that people make a living by charging a fee to get people out of jail pre-trial is almost unique to the United States. And sick. It is also... It's really freaking sick. It's really a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Only the... I mean, I like Steve Tracy a lot, but the, the, the Jacobs no. brothers, but it's sick. It is really bad. And, and yeah. so, um, and it's very corrupted, 
I don't mean the individuals are necessarily corrupt. I mean it corrupts the entire criminal justice. It steals money from poor people as an incentive to to make it expensive, so you can enrich these other people. It uh, it definitely does that among other things. And so, but just to be clear, only in the United States and the Philippines are people allowed to charge a fee to post a bond to get people out of jail. So just keep that in mind. It's this is not universal at all. And there's a number of states that prohibit this. For example, believe it or not, Kentucky does. Really? And so it doesn't mean they don't have money bail. It just means you can't charge a fee to post it. So it makes it harder for you to get out when you're so, out. So um, let me explain. It's going to take a minute or two. Yeah, it's good. Why I have such concerns about this system. Okay. For starters, um, let me explain how the bail thing works. Right. So if you are charged with a crime, Bail, uh, an amount of money bail is sometimes set. So let's just say you get charged with robbery or something and the bail is set at $100,000. Okay. The only way you're getting released from corrections... Before trial. While you're before trial is to post that bond, $100,000. And you get it back if you come back? No. (laughs) You never get that $100,000? It depends. (laughs) If you have $100,000 in cash, you can post your own bond, and if you make all your court appearances, you will get all that money back. Your other alternative, which is almost universally taken advantage of, is you pay someone, you hire a bail bondsman to post that bond for you. So that if you skip town, he'll come and get you to get his money back. In theory, but not in practice. Mm. Uh, and, and so if a bail bondsman posts $100,000 for somebody, they don't actually come in with $100,000 in cash. They sign a piece of paper. They are, most of them are backed up by an insurance company where if anybody has to pay, the insurance company pays, right? So the bail bondsman never actually goes through any cash. Correct. And uh, so let's just say you make all your court appearances and the case is resolved. That's it. You paid your fee and the bail bondsman... And your fee is usually 10%? No. <laughs> the, uh, if it's uh, for a $100,000 bond... Uh, the law says the fee has to be 7%. But bail bondsmen are allowed to agree to a payment plan. And <laughs> um, now, hold on to that thought. If you, um, let's just say you don't appear in court someday and the judge orders the bond to be forfeited and a rearrest is issued for you. In other words, you're going to be charged with failure to appear and you're taken back into custody when they find you. <clears throat> The bail bondsman still doesn't have to do anything to pay anybody that $100,000 he or she signed to promise to pay. There's an automatic six-month stay in the law, meaning nothing happens for six months. If at the end of that six months, the, the person has not been returned or found or whatever, then that triggers the ability of the state, working through the state prosecutors, to seek the money that you promised to pay under their policies, under the prosecutor's policies, if you pay within two weeks, you only have to pay 50% of what you originally owed. <laughs> but if during that six-month period of time, for whatever reason, you come back into custody, then the bail bondsman is released from the bond altogether. So if you turn yourself in, or if you get arrested or pulled over for speeding, or you get killed... So or- how often do bail bondsmen end up having to pay any cash? So... Uh, a couple of years ago, when I was in my former position, I, I asked, so how much money does the state collect the previous year 
statewide for all the forfeited bonds. How much actual cash do we get? It was something less than $2 million. Wow. And how and, much on a day is bond set at? Uh, you know. Millions a day. Uh, easy. Easy. And then bonus. how much money did these bail bondsmen, did that industry make that year? Well, based on the way I just described it to you, it's pretty clear that the risk of actually losing any money is so low, it's hardly even worth considering. The, the insurance companies that back up the bail bonds, they're national in scope companies. They've specialized in this because there's so much money to be made. I mean, it's unbelievable amount of money that you can make. It's literally a cash cow. And all this money, you know, some people say, well, I don't feel sorry for them. They're criminals or whatever. I say, well, you know, but for the most part, th this money is being posted by family members and mothers and things like that. <clears throat> um, and, and ironically, the, the most dangerous people, the frequent flyers, are the ones who have the best relationships with the bail bonds. And so they're the ones most likely to get sprung immediately from jail should they be arrested because they're good for business. And so they get a payment plan. They get a payment plan. And what difference does it make if they get arrested again a month and later? If you're involved in a drug gang, there's a lot of cash around. For sure. Right. And, and, and I, so, I thought the, the outrage, Mike, I thought was that this system, you're not setting, you don't keep people in, in behind bars before their trial based on if they're dangerous or they might flee, it's how much money they have. So if you're rich and you're really dangerous, you might flee the country, you can pay a bond. They'll set it higher in Pan's case, too high for him to make, but they'll set it higher. Or if you're involved with a criminal syndicate that can pay your bond, like there was a guy in New Haven recently, they caught a guy who emerged from a shooting scene with a gun, ran away, illegal gun, they yeah. caught him. They had a high bond, $400,000, he's gone. But so, if you're poor, so it's basically a tax on being poor. It, it is, right? And so, that's sick. It is sick. It, it is, it, so let me tell you how it corrupts the system, right? <clears throat> so um, obviously there are people who police and prosecutors would just assume be sitting in jail pre-trial. And uh, for reasons which I'll explain in a minute, you can't just hold them without bail. You have to pick some money amount. And... You are, I mean, it's just, this is a very rational thought process, right? If you want this guy to be locked up pre-trial, you just need to set the bond higher than you think he can post, right? Um, and But you could be wrong, like the guy with the $400,000. You're, you're totally could be wrong, but my point is that effect has been an extreme inflationary effect on all bail oh. bonds. And the end result is people who are not dangerous facing relatively low charges, but who don't have any kind of community ties. They don't have a job, they don't have a credit card, et cetera. Uh, a lot of them are sitting in jail pre-trial, not because they're dangerous, but simply because they they have no way of hiring a bail bondsman to post and a often bond. And sometimes people arrested didn't do the crime. That's for sure, but what I'm saying is even if they did, yeah. and then people say, well, no, the only reason they're in jail is because they committed a crime have to say well actually as it turns out the only real reason they're in jail is because they can't post bond because most of the people with that same record charged with that same crime are able to post bond right so so when people like us say let's just not have cash bail and that's the phrasing right the other side says but that lets dangerous people out but can't yeah. you replace cash bail with a system by which you convince a judge someone's dangerous or might flee you keep them in 
and otherwise you don't keep them in. It'll save us money. It gets the right people behind rather than just basing it on whether they're poor or not. Why, why, is that a, why aren't all sides agreeing to that? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> because, uh, yes, you can do that. <clears throat> but there's one hitch. Under the, state Connecticut, the Connecticut State Constitution, every person is entitled to bail, meaning every person is entitled to be released pre-trial. Um, even if they're dangerous, even if they... Even if they're dangerous. But we do have exceptions to that, right? If someone's we, threatened to kill somebody and just shot someone, they can be, still be let they, out? Yes, they can. And so, wow. so there is a solution to this problem. And New Jersey did it. Uh, most states don't have language in their state constitutions similar to ours, where you're just entitled to bail, period. You know, under the U.S. Constitution, you can't be held on excessive bail. But, there, but the, under federal law... If you were arrested in federal court, they can hold you pre-trial without bail. Because you're flight risk. You're flight risk or you're dangerous. Yeah. That is constitutional on, based on what the United States Supreme Court ruled. Our constitution, however, our state constitution doesn't say that. And so New Jersey had the same exact language in their state constitution. And they had the same problem that I'm describing. And so, ironically advocated by former Governor Christie while he was in office, passed unanimously by both houses of the New Jersey legislature, was an amendment to the state constitution together with a new system for bail. Uh, they had to get that passed in a referendum because it's an amendment to the state constitution. It passed overwhelmingly. It was supported by the ACLU and the NAACP and uh, the Sheriff's Association. And the law enforcement. Even though there was money to be lost by the bondsmen. The bail bondsmen opposed this, tried to challenge it every single way they could. So how did they change it? They still kept bail, though? They kept cash bail? Well, it's very limited in New Jersey now. It's very limited. So the number of people being held in New Jersey pre-trial has come down by about two-thirds. So why didn't they just eliminate it altogether and just put in rules for dangerous or dangerous? That's what they have. So, So judges in New Jersey are now allowed to hold people without bail, meaning going to sit in jail pre-trial if the prosecutors can present evidence that an individual poses either a flight risk or a that's the obvious solution so why do they still have cash bail at all what's cases um well the, i i think there are some cases where it might be appropriate why uh, you know i don't know exactly how they come up with these things in, in New but Jersey. what could you imagine? If well, we're taking care right. of dangerous and yeah. dangerous to flee, why would you be saying, based on how rich you are, you should be high as or ours or not pre-trial? So I can imagine, like, if you are, let, let's say, I was driving through New Jersey and got arrested for drunk driving. I'm a Connecticut resident. I have no ties to New Jersey. Um, I can imagine them saying that, you know, I got to post, like, a $5,000 bond just to make sure I show up. And I that's could, better than locking you up because it costs more to lock you up. They think you'll probably come back, but they want you to have a financial incentive to come yeah, back. Yeah, I, I get you know I can you convince see that. me of that one, Mike. Yeah. So, Mike, what about the political realities? How do you get people to talk? You said New Jersey, so that's really interesting. I can't imagine right now, given the value there is in hot dogging the crime issue, that the minute you propose this, even though you're saying that you want everybody who's dangerous of fleeing or harming a person to be kept behind bars pre-trial, even though that's part of it. You're still going to be hit by being soft on crime, letting people out. You're like right now, they're saying we're letting people out from behind bars who commit crimes. We need to have more higher bail. I don't, I don't get that. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question because, <clears throat> and 
you know, I'm old. I've become a little bit cynical about how things work. And, um, and I have a pretty good sense of what the situation is, right? So for starters, the bail bond industry would completely oppose it. And they're very well off, and they hire the best lobbyists at the state capitol, for sure, because I've dealt firsthand with this. It's <laughs> <That's> number one. <laughs> number two, um, ironically, in my experience, judges, prosecutors, and public defenders do not like this change I'm suggesting. Why? Because in order to hold people pre-trial, you have to put on some evidence. And it's something that's more not, work for them. They'd rather just say, you got to pay up, buddy. Your words, not mine. And uh, the other thing is the system actually works if your goal is to push as many cases through as possible, as quickly as possible, because, and, and this is the most ironic part of this, for many people, even today, the way to get out of jail is to plead guilty. And I can put some numbers around that. Um, so obviously, if you can't post bail, you're sitting in jail, pre-trial. We, we keep track. The state keeps track. And why is uh, it called posting bail instead of posting bond? Post, I don't know. Post bond, whatever. Okay. And uh, so, <clears throat> the, uh, so, so we keep track of who is being released from Department of Correction and in what category are they being released. There's a category called did not return from court, which means... They were locked up pre-trial, went to court one day, didn't come back to corrections. And what could possibly explain that? Well, when they went to court, it means that whatever happened in there, there was no need for them to continue to be incarcerated. Maybe the charges got dropped. Maybe they pleaded guilty, took probation. Maybe they got time served, whatever. We know how many people we're talking about. Before the pandemic, every month, it was about 600 people left DOC, went to court, didn't return. Now Department of Corrections. Yes, and now it's like 350, 400 every month. And what that means is uh, that bail, the, the, the money bail phenomenon, is a tool to get people to plead guilty. In other words, your lawyer tells you, okay, if you want to take this deal, you'll get out of jail today. If not, we're going to continue the case another two weeks or But a if month. we didn't have money bail, if we didn't have cash bail, you wouldn't have the same incentive to plead right. guilty. And, and the reason I'm stressing this is because something has happened in court where all the people involved, the prosecutors, the judges, have decided this person does not need to be further incarcerated. They don't need to be incapacitated. They're not actually currently dangerous. And they're making that decision. And so the only... <laughs> The only reason why they had been incarcerated up to that point was, you know, and, I, and I'm sure no one would acknowledge that this is the motivation, but it's a way to get people to plead guilty. It's a way to move business, and it's really corrupted the process, and to the point where there's almost no more trials left in the lower courts in the state, the GA courts. Like, maybe in a court like New Haven, four, five, six a year, if that, mm -hmm. cases are resolved with a trial. And so, if everything is plea bargaining, then... There's never any trials, and if, if you're... Their a, jobs are done easier, more cases get Everything's easier, of. and police never have to testify. I mean, there's no motions hearings, you know, there's no wow. motions. To serve. And, and, and it, it, you know, that opens the door to say things in police reports that really aren't based on facts. Cause so never, all the incentives are wrong. In Mike Waller's yes. perfect world, we would arrest fewer people, but arrest the right people. We would lock up fewer people, but lock up the very few we need to lock yeah. up. All right, we're talking Mike Lawler, who's... 
the man who knows everything about criminal justice in New Haven here at WNHH New Haven's Dateline New Haven, w, New Haven's home for community radio. Mike, one thing, again, I told you one thing I hope you never stop doing until the day you die is point out all the mistakes we reporters make based on our not understanding the criminal justice system. It's so incredibly helpful. I mean that. And one thing you've been pointing out to us lately is that we don't fully understand the law on speed cameras. Those are the cameras yeah. go up and take your license plate if you speed. And some of us don't know a lot about it. We always say, well, you know, people killing each other, road, killing people on the road, they're speeding so much. Civil libertarians, some kids thought, well, if you put a camera up there, take their license plate, it'll be used wrong. But that's sort of been addressed in New Haven. We keep trying to get a law that says we can put these speed cameras up, but the legislature keeps saying no. So I wrote a story like that, and Mike wrote to me and said, well, guess what? They can put speed cameras up. Tell me, tell me what the deal is. Yeah, so... Um this has been going on for a long time. Even when I was in the legislature, I remember people coming up about, with the speed camera thing. And let me say this to start with. You know, I'm a big sort of progressive, liberal, whatever you want to say. And, but the one thing I really disagree with the ACLU on is the, this, this obsession with privacy, right? Because I actually think privacy is, is that ship has sailed for many different reasons. And so uh, the... The speed camera thing does not bother me at all from the point of view of privacy. Well, their concern is it might capture something else on the camera. Otherwise, right, but it's out in public, have, and they're doing the license right. plate. And you can have rules that govern that if you want to. Yeah. So what do you need to put speed cameras up on a telephone pole or red light cameras? You don't need any special law because you can give a ticket to somebody if there is probable cause to believe they violated the law, right? I mean, that's the way. I mean, think of how many people get arrested based on a video image or a photographic image. I mean, this happens all the time. What the legislation has traditionally sought to do was to allow a municipality to create a whole separate court to adjudicate the cases of people who receive these tickets and want to contest it. Because normally, that would, if you get a ticket for going through a red light, you would go to state court where it would be dealt with by judges and prosecutors. And the other part of the legislation is to allow the city, the reason the city wants to be able to do this is because they would get some revenue, which would be shared with the vendor who provides the camera. That's fair. And, okay, I got that. The, the part about that that actually bothers me is to have a whole separate new kind of court established. Where oh, why do they want that? Because that's the only way to get the revenue to pay for them. To have a but court. if you wanted to put up cameras, get a grant to pay for it or whatever, and issue tickets to people who are going through red lights based on a, a video image or a photographic image, you can do that today. So specifically the bill that they're debating this session by Roland Lamar, that's to create the municipal court and the and the collection of fees? It, yeah. I mean, in effect, it would do that. But I'm just saying like... But, but it doesn't. It, it's not saying we're allowed to have speed cameras because you're saying we're well, already. It says are. that too, but I don't think you need to say it because you can already do. It. You know, there's laws on the books that say um, that there's a presumption that the registered owner of a car was the driver for a variety of offenses. Not on that list, ironically, is red lights. Right, so you could make that small amendment just to make it clear if it's your license plate, we're going to just it's a rebuttable presumption. You're the one driving. So it sounds like we do need state legislation. To do that, yeah, but I'm just saying my concern is the local idea of creating these. Right. So, but if we put the cameras up tomorrow, then we couldn't prosecute any cases. We can't prove they were driving. No, you could. I mean, you could. How? You just charge them. You know, 
but they'll just say I wasn't driving my car. Somebody fine, else was. Fine. And for that, you're entitled to a hearing in court. And you have to lie under oath. You don't have to lie. To say you weren't driving you if you were. Anything. No, you don't have to say anything. I I'm mean, okay. no one has to say anything in court, right? But Plead the fifth. You, but you can't even call to testify. You can testify if you choose to. But um, under the law, for offenses like this, the burden of proof for the state is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's proof by a preponderance of evidence. And hearsay is admissible, unlike in a criminal trial, right? So it's a very simple procedure. And people getting tickets all the time and going to court to contest them. And, you know, if the image clearly shows the driver, it's easy. But I thought one thing we're promising is that the image won't show the driver because of the privacy concerns. I'm, all I'm saying is... Oh, the image could show the driver. I'm saying that you could do this today. I mean, people mm -hmm. get charged with crimes based on a photographic image of them committing a crime. I mean, that happens all the time. But we're so just, Mike, Mike we're Lawler... We're just talking about the police officers who got caught on TV, on video doing right. stuff. We're talking about Mike, we're talking Mike Lawler about criminal justice, explaining it all for us on WNHHFM's Dateline New Haven. Mike, what about juvenile crime and car thefts? Those have popped up all over the country it led to some not very productive debates and campaigns. But what do we do on the ground now? What, what is going on with car thefts going up, kids carjacking, or, and what can be done about it? There's a lot of concern I hear from police officers about understandable laws about releasing children, or they feel like right down the street and doing it again. Yeah, so it's a, real, it's a problem. There's no question about it. Um, it's always good to have a historical context. Um, if you... Uh, go back to like the early 1990s, there was literally four or five times higher number of cars being stolen. And really? Lot, yeah, there was a lot fewer cars back then. I think it, it was wow. that, it was like total of 26,000 reported car thefts in 1992. In, in Connecticut? The, in the state. And, and, and last year we have data for it was like about 7,000. Wow, that's which, no, deep. It's, it's, it's huge. Is that because the car companies got better at... at, at uh, well, security protocols. And I, I think so, right? Uh, it used to be, I mean, I mean no car alarms, no anti-lock, for sure. And uh, and uh, but also, don't forget, back then to steal a car, you had to you had to trigger the ignition because there was no fobs, right? So you so you didn't have a key. You had to break in. There was, it was relatively easy to do it. But back then, the purpose of stealing most of these cars was to to make money, to sell them, or to dismantle them, or put them on a barge to like Africa or something. Now it's totally different. Um, most of the cars that are taken uh, are number one unlocked, like eighty or ninety or maybe higher percent were left unlocked with the keys inside. <laughs> and and so that's you know message number one is if you really are offended by the fact that the car thefts have gone up a little bit in recent years, you know just make sure you lock your car. You know, um, number two, I, I think a lot of it is just simple, just joyriding cool to just drive around in this car or that car for a while and leave it somewhere and number three sometimes these cars are being taken and then used to commit other crimes right uh robberies or whatever so the problems are a lot less than it used to be we have a lot more control than we used to if we just lock our cars correct any and, other thoughts here is but that it's a real pro no but it's a real problem that's going up a little bit last couple of years it's probably got something to do with the pandemic uh, it's been suggested that this has something to do with Connecticut's uh, juvenile justice reforms. Well, if that were true, it would only be happening in Connecticut. This is a nationwide phenomenon. It's happening in states that have no problem putting juveniles in jail for lengthy periods of time. And it has everything to do with the uh, key fobs and 
uh, people leaving their cars unlocked. And, and, and it's a thing, right? It's, you know, if, if, if I don't think any of us would ever think it would be a good idea to leave all our life savings out on our front porch overnight because someone would probably take it. And the same thing with an unlocked car. And, and so um, now, having said that, there are some uh, repeat offender type juveniles. There's a re- relatively small number of them. The laws do allow the police to take action. It does require a little extra effort. The laws were amended last year to make it simpler, um, and and there are tools to be used. You know, it's 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 not impossible to hold these repeat juvenile offenders accountable, and you know, it just takes a little extra effort. There's a mayoral campaign going on this this year. It's separate from like who you want to have win or not. There've been kind of interesting ideas suggested by another former prosecutor, federal prosecutor. Liam Ziskel, he's running for mayor. He suggested that the, if he wins, he's going to order that the police no longer arrest people for any drug offenses, including dealing, including hard drugs, and for owning a gun, legal gun. His thinking is that with illegal guns, you got to focus on where the guns are coming from, and if, if you, people are more likely to turn in their family member, their partner, if they know that they won't also get arrested if they tell the cops you can come get the gun. With drug dealing, he says that war on drugs doesn't work. It doesn't stop people using drugs. It's just a public health measure. He doesn't agree with police who say getting them in the system at least force them to get the help. And that he says that, uh, you know, with dealers, you can go stop someone. from. You could take away the illegal crack from their hands that they're dealing on the green, but you, you don't have to lock them up because that doesn't help anybody. Apart, apart from the political viability of those ideas in a campaign, is he right that that's the right thing to do? So I, I know uh, I know the mayor obviously I know Shafiq I, I know Liam, uh, and so I, I'm not going to get in the middle of that stuff. But um, a couple of things Liam said make sense. Um, I, first of all, I, I, I always try to steer clear of, of absolute policies. You know, we're not going to do this ever under any circumstances, or we're going to have zero tolerance. Like um, I, I think it's important to use discretion. Every situation is different. You know, how you want to respond to it should be uniquely tailored to whatever's going on. And there's, generally speaking, more to the story, right, in all these cases. Now, having said that, uh, one thing I believe very strongly in is that if, if people are concerned about drug abuse, uh, trying to rely on the criminal justice system to solve that problem is a fool's errand, right? I mean, if it was a good idea, we would know it by now. This has been going on since the late 1970s. And it's gotten the exact opposite of the intended results. Drugs are more plentiful, easier to get your hands on, cheaper and more powerful than they've ever been before, notwithstanding all of these various law enforcement approaches. To me, it is a public health problem. It should be left in the hands of public health individuals. I like the idea of stuff that's been experimented with in other countries like Portugal and and Switzerland and elsewhere where... You know, if, if, if you are actually a drug-dependent person, especially on opioids, then you get access to pharmaceutical opioids because you're not going to overdose if you know exactly what you're consuming uh, any more than, uh, you know, you or I would go out and buy liquor. That was, How about gun possession? Uh, gun, I, I feel very strongly about illegal gun possession, and I think we, you know, um, the the criminal justice system should be involved with that um, because it is clearly dangerous. Um, how you handle each individual case depends on the, the circumstances. I think 
you know, there is a law that says prosecutors and courts have to give first priority to criminal cases involving actual or threatened violence and firearm possession. That's the law. That's a priority. And, and I helped write that law. I feel very strongly about guns. So now it, it does circle back to cash bail. Um, there's a proposal before let's say to this session is divided some people in New Haven about increasing how much cash bond can be set at when you have a repeat gun offender. So fired on a new gun uh, offense, they want to say you have to pay 30% rather than 7%. Do you agree with that proposal? I, I think the better approach is what I was describing earlier. Amend the state constitution, allow prosecutors to seek pretrial detention without the possibility of bail if they can demonstrate that an individual is in fact dangerous or a flight risk. Based, we, based on the former gun convictions. Now, we can't really... Based on anything. But if you were in the... If you were still where you were before, we want to take some action you know the politics make that impossible right now because the idiocy of our of our debate well i think the potential is this okay in the meantime the 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 potential problem with the 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 proposal is that uh 30 percent so if you're in this category like a serious gun offender you'd have to post whatever bond is set 30 percent would have to be paid in cash by you as a practical matter i think no one's going to be able to do that uh, so it's de facto pretrial detention, and I think then you run into a potential problem with the state constitution. And, you know, it is worth noting, just a few months ago, the state Supreme Court unanimously ruled in the case of, what's the guy that's accused of murdering the Yale graduate student here? Yeah. Um, but in any event, in that particular case, they ruled that you can't, uh, you, you know, you have to be very careful in setting bail beyond someone's means of posting it in the absence of some showing of danger you know i mean it's really although he's the ultimate flight risk he lent he left led marshals on a multi-state weeks long right but they, they weren't they really they really weren't weighing they approved the bail that was set in his case but what they said going forward in any other case there's new standards for setting bail beyond people's reach and and i think you know the 30 percent thing could potentially be ruled a violation interesting very interesting Mike Waller, I learned so much every time I talk to you. You have such a reasoned, calm, and yet coming from a moral core take on criminal justice. And thank you so much for taking an hour out of your busy life to school us on Dateline and Haven. <laughs> Anytime, Paul. Thanks to Harry Drose for putting up with show hosts who don't always work the knobs right. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free. From the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.